It's on? <laughs> yeah. Great. Uh, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. I thought we were going to get the big room, but uh, this will be. Uh, my name is Brian Mason. I'm the Chief Operating Officer uh, for Adaptive Path. Uh, with me is my friend and colleague, Sarah Nelson, who is a design strategist at Adaptive Path. Yeah. Uh, Adaptive Path is a San Francisco-based user experience firm. Uh, we focus on experience strategy and design through consulting and training. Uh, we're actually going to not talk too much about Adaptive Path today, but rather uh, focus on uh, some management and life lessons learned earlier in our careers. And uh, we took a more journalistic approach today, uh, interviewed a bunch of people, and we'll and uh, we'll talk about that. So by way of introduction and at the urging of my wife, I'll share with you this series of now almost 20-year-old photos. Um, I, uh, out of college, I moved to New York, and I worked for a little while as an actor on stage, a little bit of television. But I pretty quickly moved from that into stage management and then company management. Uh, I produced a couple of small shows in New York before I moved to San Francisco. And I think that early management life lesson, a stage manager's mindset of uh, a show's opening in five days or the curtain's going up at eight o'clock and uh, everything in the world can happen between now and then, but that thing is certain, has always, um, has always influenced my management of, of even Adaptive Path today, as anyone who works with me I think will probably attest. Uh, and the way in which you uh, have those sort of inflexible deadlines that just don't move and still create an environment in which creative people do their best work is the conversation that Sarah and I have been having for a long while and uh, what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. So Sarah, you want to tell us a little bit about Sarah? So that's me. Ah, so sweet. Um, so I've been playing violin since I was about three, um, three years old. And I grew up in a family of musicians and I grew up um, in a community for whom classical music was a very central thing. And uh, I learned to read music before I learned to read English, which, which explains kind of a lot of things about me. Um, some of which you may see today, some of which you may not. But classical music is a really highly structured environment. Um, there are centuries of experience, groups of people making music together. Um, I did a lot of classical music. I got into fine art photography. And through art is actually how I got into interaction design. I was really interested in sort of collective narratives and things like that. Um, when I got into interaction design, one of the things that surprised the heck out of me was how um, ambiguous the design process was a lot of the time. And in, and in truth, it's really an emerging discipline. And we don't have centuries of experience. We have you know, the experience of you know, 20, 30 years, perhaps. And um, <clears throat> so it really disturbed me a lot. <laughs> I like to have clarity and structure. Um, so one of the things I do when... Um, things are ambiguous to me, is I start to look around to other people's experiences and look laterally. So I, so um, over the last couple of years, that's some of the information I've been putting together is looking at how other groups who make creative work together, um, who, do, who are highly functioning, how they actually go about doing that. So Brian and I talked to several organizations. Um, there are theater organizations represented here, musical organizations, kitchens, um, groups of writers. The organizations we looked at are, um, we chose them because they're groups of people, not individual artists. So there's a lot you know, about how individuals are creative, but particularly interested in how groups work together, um, how they create as a group. We also wanted to look at groups that have hard deadlines and have to actually repeat things. So it's not kind of a one-off thing, but it's something that they have to do um, over and over. Um, and we also wanted to look at groups that were trying to do something different with the creative process. So um, one of the main reasons that and one of the things that we really get out of this is um, looking for ways that we as designers, things that we can bring back into our workplaces to make them a more dynamic environment. Um, so while you're listening to this, think about the way that you work, the way the people around you work, ways that you can kind of bring some of this thinking back into your organizations. So the first one I'm going to talk about is the, are the neo-futurists. Um, has anybody here seen Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind? Okay. Yay. I love the neo-futurists. I will talk about them for hours, and you will hear me talk about them a lot today. But the neo-futurists are a Chicago-based theater company. They do Their show, Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind, is the longest-running show in Chicago. Um, every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night, 50 weeks out of the year, they do 30 plays in 60 minutes. So if you do the math, that's two minutes of play. <clears throat> There's about six or seven, I think it's about six on the weekly um, cycle. What's interesting about them is they don't do the same 30 plays a week. They actually, on a Sunday, they have the audience roll die, roll two die, um, and they will do between two and 12 new plays 
every week. So they're writing between two and 12 new plays every single week, um, 50 weeks out of the year. So it's a, it's a pretty impressive, it's a pretty impressive little system that they have. And so this is my dorky, like I like to diagram out everything. But, um, so the way that the cycle basically works, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, they're doing performances. And on Tuesday, so between Sunday and Tuesday, the um, members of the organization are writing new plays. And they come in on Tuesdays, and they pitch the plays to each other. They select the plays. They rehearse those plays. And then that's it. So it's a highly efficient process. Um, so we'll talk a little bit more about them, too. Uh, we interviewed Ryan Freitas, who is an uh, experienced director at Adaptive Path. But he took the tech bust off, uh, put himself through California Culinary Institute, and ended up in the kitchen of a, a restaurant called Aqua in San Francisco. Uh, it's one of the only uh, Michelin-rated restaurants in San Francisco. And we talked a lot about how a restaurant kitchen, which is a martial system of, of uh, working, uh, can actually put out a reliably creative and uh, quality product in, in a place that looks incredibly hectic and yet is an incredibly precise uh, uh, organization and structure. So that was uh, one of the folks we talked to. And... Orchestras. I spent a lot. I've spent a lot of time in orchestras. This is actually Benjamin Zander. I cannot remember for the life of me what orchestra he conducts because I'm not really in that scene anymore. But um, the thing about orchestras is that that it, that might be kind of deceptive. If if your experience with an orchestra is that you were in a high school orchestra, you might remember doing the same piece over and over and over, and then doing your Christmas concert. But <laughs> professional orchestras actually do work in a really fast turnaround environment. They often are doing. Uh, maybe a new concert every single week or maybe every two weeks. So they're learning a lot of new repertoire in a very rapid way. Um, you're also, when you think about it, it's a hundred people within a hundred people who need to kind of come together as one cohesive unit. And every single member of that organization is making, it's, uh, makes part of the whole kind of soundscape of the, of the, of the piece. Um, the other, the other component that's interesting about orchestras is that they, people, they tend to be highly stable. People work together for a really long period of time. So they have, um, a whole whole systems for um, keeping together. Mm -hmm. uh, we spoke with the Job Factory, which are six screenwriters in Los Angeles. Uh, they work as a collective, sometimes individually, usually as a collective. Uh, they put out movies like Employee of the Month, the Dukes of Hazard movie, uh, Waiting, and uh, the gentleman on the far left here, uh, your right, uh, is Josh Kagan. He wrote uh, a movie called Will, which is actually right now shooting in Austin. So we talked to them about what it is to have a completely non-hierarchical, completely flat organization where everybody brings in con studio contacts or creative ideas and has to manage it and get it past them and past their liberal use of medical marijuana. <laughs> I was going to have a really good segue about collectives, but now I've got the marijuana thing. Um, <laughs> Steppenwolf. Steppenwolf is, is another Chicago theater organization um, who, might, who, if I don't know how well you can see these pictures, but it's a pretty much a who's who of television, theater, movie actors. Um, it was founded by Gary Sinise, um, and I, I feel bad because I cannot remember the name of the other two. I think Terry, nah, I can't remember. But John Malkovich is in it, um, John Mahoney, Lori Metcalf, Tom Irwin. There are a lot, there are an enormous number of extremely talented people within this organization. But what's interesting about it is that there's about 30 to 35 of them um, who do a lot, who are, you know, incredibly pro prolific. But Steppenwolf is sort of, is their artistic home. Um, they are selected to become a member of this organization. And once they are, they have an enormous amount of artistic freedom. So they can, um, choose to work with each other, you know, in, in sort of combinations. There are, there are, there are groups of people who work together repeatedly on projects. And there are some, they kind of form teams. And, um, so it's a, it's a highly dynamic, very, uh, creative, creative group. We'll talk a little bit about them. Last two we uh, talked to, one of the, uh, the writer and composer of Avenue Q. Anybody here seen Avenue Q? Dirty Puppets. Hilarious show. It's a Broadway musical uh, starring puppets. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, in 2003, it won a number of Tony Awards, including the Best New Musical. And I think the, the, the best way of illustrating uh, the way in which it's different, if you download the soundtrack from uh, iTunes, it's one of the only Broadway cast albums that has explicit lyrics neck out of, uh, in 18 out of 18 songs. Uh, songs like, If You Were Gay, The Internet Is For Porn, uh, Everybody Is A Little Bit Racist. It's a, it's a different kind of Broadway show, uh, and it's incredibly funny, especially when such foul words are coming out of adorable puppets. Um, and then the last, the last interview we did was, anybody remember Web Techniques or New Architect magazine? Good. Uh, during the uh, uh, during the first boom, uh, Web Techniques and New Architects serve the design, development, and engineering community. 
and it was written by the people who actually did the work. So the editorial staff there had the challenge of, of working with designers, developers, engineers to express ideas uh, in, a, in a venue or in a forum uh, about which they had little experience or in which they had little experience. So the editorial staff there was really um, helping people express themselves, uh, and that was, that was interesting. So in talking with all of these folks, we found a, a set number of, of principles that we uh, are calling these tips. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, we, there are a number of organizations. One of the things we're looking for is patterns, um, things that people that that kind of the organizations generally talked about, and specific things that they did um, to deal with with problems that they run into. So what we're we're going to go through each one of these, and what what we were looking for specifically are things that you can use um, to keep your creative groups energized and invigorated and inspired over the course of over the course of time. So. So cross-training the entire team, number one. That's a one, I swear. So the idea of cross-training an entire team means that you want to give all members of the team experience with the other related disciplines and also administ administrative tasks on the team. So this is something that you know I think is, is relatively common practice. At Adaptive Path, we, um, we often allow, we, we, we have people who specialize in different areas, information architects, interaction designers, um, design strategists, and, and you, you give people exposure in other areas. So the neo-futurists, um, the neo-futurists are kind of, I'm waiting for my little diagram to come up. Um, so the neo-futurists have a number of different roles that every single person in the organization plays. And they, they specifically screen for people who are able to play multiple roles. So this is not a group of actors who are going to um, say the words that are put in front of them. This is a group of people who can not only say the words, but they can write the words too, and they can direct people to do the words as well. So um, every neo-futurist is a director. They worry about technical, um, about the, the tech, they have actually a very te simple technical setup, but they, they do become familiar with the, the capabilities of lighting and sound and things that are within the organization. Um, they're also dealing with things. This is uh, Sharon Green, who's the former artistic director. Um, in addition to all of her kind of the creative role, she's also a manual laborer. She's an archivist. She's a you know a critic and a manager and all of these things. And people very easily within that organization slip into other roles. One of the things that is really important for them is that they want every member of the organization to have a sense of what every other member is experiencing. Um, and they want to also have a very cohesive group of people so that I always like to use the phrase, if someone gets hit by a bus, you can still do the show on Friday night, um, which is obviously an important thing. But you also, you really learn empathy for other people's experience, and you can distribute the responsibilities amongst the rest of the group. But from a creative standpoint, one of the things that's great about cross-training is that it actually teaches um, you the possibilities for what could exist. So you might not, you might not become, um, let's say your strength is in writing, you might not be the strongest I don't know, strongest singer, for instance. But if you get experience doing that, you begin to understand what's actually possible, or maybe with, a, with technical constraints. You start to understand what's possible, which can only enrich the work that you do and only enrich the work that other people do as well. So that's one of the reasons that we do a lot of cross-training, also at Adaptive Path, too, is that it gives our design strategists a sense of what is possible as interaction designers, though they may never be, um, interaction design may never be their, their top. Yeah. Which segues into the second tip, which is uh, a lot of these organizations uh, rotate, rotate creative leadership. Uh, and the, uh, the job factory is sort of the best example, the six screenwriters. Depending on the person that uh, came up with the, the script idea or the person with the contact with the studios, uh, they would lead the group through the, the entire creative process. Uh, that role was formalized in, in what they call the hammer. Uh, the hammer serves as both the project manager, making sure that things get delivered on time, but also the, the creative director deciding uh, what stays in, what stays out, how characters and scenes are going to develop, and, and frankly, if a joke is funny or not. Uh, and that changes person to person, and they'll work on three to five scripts at a time, so that's even, that'll even change day to day, depending on what they're working on, depending on what their deadlines require. There are, t there are actually two things that the neo-futurists do. One is that they, they refer to their um, the actors, I think they call them writer-performers, because each, each neo-futurist writes their own play, and then they perform in it, and they perform in that play as themselves as well. So 30 plays in 60 minutes, each member of the cast is, is performing the plays that they've written, and what you get is a sense of ownership, so each actor has a moment um, in which they completely own what is happening. So they get to make the final decisions about what happens in their play. But a few minutes later, they may be actually the actor in someone else's play. So there's a very clear sense of, of ownership and a time that you're going to actually experience that. Um, which seemed, when I, when I talked to the group, it seemed to really give 
the members of the group, a real sense of security. They're much more willing to do what another director does. They know that at some other point they have um, their own, own, own sense of ownership. Um, the other role that they have is a role they call the conductor. Um, the conductor is a voluntary role. Um, different members of the organization volunteer, volunteer to do that for a couple weeks at a time. And the conductor's job is to facilitate the rehearsal process and to make sure it kind of moves through at the rate it needs to go through and the decisions are made. Doesn't make those decisions, but facilitates the, the decisions and then ensures that everyone um, understands what they need to do, which actually leads us. Leads us to point three. Actively turning the corner. So I'm going to use a diagram to explain what I mean. What corner, you might ask. Um, so in any creative process, there is always there is always a kind of a period of divergence and a period of convergence, um, whether that's over the course of an entire project or within the course of a meeting. Any time that you're kind of going through um, making something new, you typically follow this. So a divergent... The, the divergent period is really the creative period. It's where you're coming up with lots of new ideas, where you're exploring new spaces. Um, it is, it's typified by sort of a, a sense of collaboration, a sense of possibility. Um, this is where we do a lot of like workshops and, and just things that kind of just unlock people's um, ways of thinking. As we talk to different folks, everybody described this period in very different terms. Right. Like nobody used the same vocabulary, and yet everybody we spoke to had the sort of open, expansive, there are no bad ideas, there are no stupid questions, period. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, they turned that corner and started uh, eliminating ideas, focusing on what they were doing, like moved into the production phase. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we found was really good creative leadership, made sure everybody felt enfranchised in that sort of creative process, and everybody knew they were turning the corners uh, at the appropriate time. Right. I, I think, you know, one of the things that is often frustrating in, in one of the sources of frustration in um, creative environments, and at least in my experience, is that um, you get people who think they're in one phase, but they're actually in another. So, for instance, you're in the divergent phase where you're trying to kind of open up new possibilities, and you have someone who's coming in saying, that's a bad idea, that won't work, blah, blah, you know, whatever, whatever it does, it kind of shuts, you know, how are we going to get this done? We have to get it done by Thursday. Or they're kind of in that in that mindset. The flip side is that you get people who are trying, we're trying to make something happen in that convergence part, and you've got someone who comes in and goes, what if, what if, what if, what if, and then you get moving targets, and you get this sort of general kind of fuzziness. Um, and when you're in that wrong, when you have people in the wrong frame of mind, what you typically get is good ideas executed badly or bad ideas executed, executed badly. badly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's really, really no way around it. So, it's, it's, but it's really tricky because, you know, how do you really know where, where you actually are? And some of it, so the neo-futurists do in the rehearsal process, the rehearsal part is the divergent part. We have these possibilities for plays. What could they be? Um, and then they have the actual, the part where they really, they've chosen the plays and they do them. The way that they divide is they have a, they just have a physical break. They have a, they, they take a 10 minute smoke break. <laughs> we were in divergence and now we're in convergence. It's a very kind of clear and you watch the people, the people shift. It's a little bit trickier in design. I mean, sometimes we can say, okay, we have deadlines that sort of, they say by this date we will be shifting um, into, into the second phase. Mm -hmm. So that's that kind of, um, I'd say orchestras also have this too. I mean, the early part of rehearsals um, are very kind of exploratory. What is this piece about? And at some point it becomes about details and refinement. Mm -hmm. Good. Uh, which leads to the, to the next point, which is uh, sort of knowing the roles in that, in that uh, convergent phase, that production phase. Uh, people called it different things, called battle stations or stations in the kitchen or role in the editorial role on that service. But especially in the very open, hippie California that we live in, uh, everybody kind of wants to do everything, uh, but what we found was again and again the really successful teams, uh, once they turned that corner, knew exactly what they were supposed to do, where they were. It turned into a surprisingly hierarchical system in almost every instance where uh, there was a deadline and everybody understood their roles. They understood the things about which they uh, had some authority uh, uh, and the, the, the areas in which they could make decisions and the areas in which it was somebody else's job, and they focused on that. Um, I think the, the, the kitchen is the best example of that sort of martial law system of getting things done. You have your saw station, your grill station, you have uh, somebody in the pantry, you have an expediter, and everybody knows their role. And so while everybody might really like to talk about the food and the experience and what they were doing with the restaurant, when they're in service, it is a, it is a though it looks chaotic if you don't understand the system, that system is tight and everybody moves the same way every time, everybody works in a way that they rely on everybody else doing their job and doing it uh, uh, succinctly. Um, uh, Avenue Q was a really 
interesting example, when I talked to Bob Hughes, the lyricist and composer, about what his role is once they started, started honing it down and heading towards production, uh, he said something that I thought was insightful and very helpful, which is his job was to shut up. At that point, it was his job to be very quiet. He wrote the thing, and maybe they needed some interstitial music, or maybe they needed some line changes. But in that production phase, it, uh, he was he could give notes to the director. But if he really tried to introduce anything else, it would be disruptive and ultimately not helpful. And so he, he ended up skipping a lot of re rehearsals because that's frustrating. Uh, but he understood his role, and, and he did it admirably. You know, it's interesting. I actually was, I like to throw in stories that we hadn't talked about, but, um, so I think about in orchestras. So we often, we typically think of a conductor as, uh, the, the really clear leadership role is the conductor at the top. And you might, if you know something about it, think about the, um, concert master or mistress, the sort of lead violinist. But actually there, there is actually, there's a hierarchy within, within the group that's actually about transmitting communication through um, a hundred, hundred people. And so you get the leaders of the different sections, and I can really, I can really only speak to strings because that's my area. But each leader of the section, so the violins, um, one of the things that happens is that, we'll talk about Boeing. I guess Boeing comes up a lot. I don't know. When you're a violinist? When you're a violinist, it comes up a lot. So Boeing is when the bow goes down, the bow goes up, right? And the, the different ways that you move it, um, influences the phrasing of any, of, of any music. And when you have whatever, 50 violins, they need to kind of bow and sync, or you get, um, you, you don't get that kind of coherence. So it's the job of each of the section leaders to coordinate with the other section leaders and with the conductor to kind of understand what the correct bowings are, not just for the visual of all the bows go up and down at the same time, but so that it sounds cohesive. And then it's that person's job to communicate it all the way back to the rest of the, of the, of the people. And it isn't once you're actually in the, um, well into the, the rehearsal phase is not the job of the 20th chair to, um, change the bows because they want to. It's about, it's about kind of becoming a whole unit. Mm -hmm. So that's something. Cool. Bowing will come up again. I might contradict myself. Practice, practice, practice. Um, so <laughs> practicing. I think I often typically think about practicing as, as, um, a way to improve my own skills, but really in this context, in group contexts, Practicing with each other is not about just improving your individual skills, but improving your, your skills as an entire unit. Um, and the reason that you want to do that is that in crunch time, and especially in the performing arts, in, in crunch time, you want to know that um, what is supposed to happen is going to happen, right? You want to, you want to have a really good um, confidence both in yourselves and in everyone else around you because when stress comes up, you just never really, you really, you often don't know what happens and you need to kind of be able to fall into, um, this kind of very strong foundation. So the neo-futurists do this through by repeating their process. Um, they repeat the process, you know, every single week. Um, so the end they have again like 18 years of doing it. They do change personnel as it goes along. Um, so one of the things that you see is when a group of people actually work together every single week, the same group of people without any personnel changes over say uh, five or six weeks, the way that the group functions is actually different than when they're kind of bringing individuals in. So everybody understands how the process works. Um, but one of the rehearsals that I observed, um, this particular group that I saw had been together continuously for five weeks. So by the time I saw them, they were a really well-oiled machine. But what it did from a creativity standpoint is it gave them this platform that they could actually, they were starting to experiment um, with the format in really unusual ways. Um, they also were having really interesting discussions because they were starting to try to break the format. Um, they have a, this very kind of highly structured thing. So people were starting to break it, but it was because they felt comfortable in that environment to be able to be able to experiment, and so they could um, kind of move move from that. And we, uh, folks would look for opportunities to practice because you don't want to practice like you don't introduce uh, new people into the kitchen on a Saturday night, right? Mm -hmm. Monday, Tuesday, lunch is when you put in new people so that the team learns to work together. Uh, and we found folks that were, would repeatedly find ways that were of, that were not mission critical projects to try out new people, to try new methods, to make sure the team was all working together on stuff that was in some way or another uh, less critical. At Adaptive Path, we try to do that through like R&D projects, internal mm -hmm. projects that are not for a client, but rather ways that we can um, use new methods, uh, uh, cross-train the team, right. find different ways to sort of strengthen our process and strengthen our, our toolkit in a way that's not uh, practicing when somebody's paying us a bunch of money and, and uh, uh, really is, is counting on us. That's not the time to experiment. That's not the time to practice. Practice is, uh, is for beforehand. I might slightly disagree, but 
Um, <laughs> because what I'm going to throw another thing and we haven't talked about. Um, one of the things that we're actually we're, we're experimenting with a lot at Adaptive Path are, are um, ideas of design sprints. And um, Brandon Schauer and Leah Buley have really kind of um, taken, that, t- taken that technique out. We've been um, trying to extend it and see. So, so essentially what it is is that you set up, we, we like to work right with clients. So we kind of ex- I like to say it's like exposing the guts of the design process right with the clients in the room. Um, and what we'll do is kind of set up a very repeated schedule. So every week we come back, we'll... we'll Beginning of the week, we'll decide what we're going to work on, and then um, as a design team, we'll start kind of working on that idea. Then we go in with the client. We'll spend an, an entire morning with them sketching and just kind of evolving the design with them right in the room. And the client I just uh, was just working with, we spent about three weeks doing that. And it it's interesting because you get actually very far with it, and you also, as a team, both our team and the client team, we begin to really have a shared language um, around the work that we're doing, and that the design evolves in ways that it might not have designed and might not have evolved if we had kind of all gone our separate ways, done some work, come back, and tried to um, piece it together. So it definitely had a feeling of practice and improving um, to it. Uh, can you do that with all clients? No. Okay. I think I, <laughs> this is a whole other discussion. But yeah, yeah, that was sort of my, no. my guess. Was that client? I think you had a really good, yes. open, collaborative yeah. client. They were... They had the benefit of being nearby, which not all of our clients do. Yeah. So you had, I think, a, a good circumstance, yeah. as did Brandon and Leah. When they developed that yeah. with a client, they were nearby and and yeah. open to that. And yeah. I can think of a number of clients that would be really uncomfortable yeah. with us trying new things on them. Yeah, it's true. Okay, it's true. I agree. But yeah, really, willingness was definitely the sort of the key, the key to, to that. So. Good. Okay. Uh, so uh, <laughs> uh, moving on to point six. Um, one thing is to make your mission explicit to the whole team. Um, and this was uh, sort of best uh, typified by Avenue Q. Uh, it took about two years for them to write uh, the entire show. It started with Bobby being uh, living with his mom after college and being really depressed about it. So as a lyricist and a composer, he started writing some music about living with his mom and having to get, get his life in order. Uh, and it, it, because it took so long and they had uh, a lot of friends with the puppets involved, they had an outrageous amount of material, a lot of songs, a lot of scenes. Uh, and so they initially were going to make it a musical review. So they could just set it on a street corner and whatever happened, happened. And they would just make sure that all the, all the songs were funny and the, the, the characters were compelling. But it never, it wasn't holding together like that. It was not the sum of its parts. So they made a choice to, to uh, um, have the lead character, by the end of the show, needed to find his purpose in life. Right? Princeton's lead character, and by the end of the show, he had to find his purpose in life. A pretty, a pretty lofty mission. Mm-hmm. And so then they had a, a measuring stick by which they could decide if each scene, each character, each song stayed in or out. Anything that helped Princeton find his purpose in life stayed in, and everything else, and some stuff that they really liked, got pulled out. And in fact, in, in, the, in the production, if you've seen it, there are those big super titles over the stage, and anytime he sort of makes a step towards it, they just flash the word purpose in front of the audience. Um, it's, a, it, it's, uh, it's actually a really funny and convenient device. And I think that um, company by company, product by product, it's really obvious when you look at the product if that group knew exactly what they were making. And it's, I think it's even more so with companies. Um, Google is a good example of a company that we know what their mission is. They want to organize the world's information. Mm-hmm. And right or wrong, like it or don't like it, that's what that company is trying to get done. Yeah. This is something, I mean, this, I think on, on, you know, as designers, it's, it's really critical. Communication is really critical to the success or failure of a project. If, if, if all the team members don't actually understand what you're trying to do, um, the chances of your success are very, very low. Um, but one of the things that is so um, kind of tricky about it is that even in the course of a conversation, I may say something to you and you may say that you agree. And my understanding of your interpretation and your actual understanding can be really vastly different. Um, and there's there's a, you know an enormous amount of of work out work out there that deals specifically with this. But you know I think about um, I think the book Made to Stick, Chip and Dan Heath. That's it's they do, they talk a lot about that. You get the the stories of of Kennedy's we're going to put a man on the moon in ten years or whatever it was that he said. But that you make these missions really explicit, but you also make them actionable, um, so that so that you can um, so that so that people aren't kind of hamstrung and they can make decisions, make creative decisions. Um, but that they also know where they're going. So the neo-futurists do this actually, I mean, they have a, a clear set of values of what it means to be a neo-futurist. Um, 
there are there are a set of artistic values. I, I'm not sure if they call it a manifesto. Whether I'm confusing that with futurist manifestos, I don't know. But um, it, would, it seems like they would. But they but they have a very explicitly stated set of values about what it means to be a neo futurist, as opposed to an actor in another organization. So, for instance, um, I neo futurist. I write a play about myself. I play myself in that. I don't pretend I'm somebody else. I play myself, and I write about what's happening in my life, not what's in your life, but what's in my life. And if I'm writing for somebody else, I'm writing for Sarah's writing for Brian, not Sarah's writing for Brian playing the part of Dan, whatever. So it's a very kind of, unless I said that explicitly, (laughs) that you were going to play the part, Brian playing the part of Dan. So they have a very kind of clear set of rules um, that they can play within. But what I think is really counterintuitive about these things is that when you actually start to box things in like that, you actually are opening it up creatively. I think a lot of young designers and and artists think that... um, constraints on you mean that you can't be very creative. But actually, I mean, if you look at what most um, most really successful artists do, they do actually find a way to impose constraints, whether that's time or subject matter or materials or whatever, that kind of will, will put a, a frame around it because it causes you to flip things upside down, work things in a really different way, and then potentially discover something completely new. Mm-hmm. So. so, uh, the next thing would be, uh, so once you've got that sort of explicit mission statement, the ways in which they found, uh, uh, there's a phrase I heard a number of times, killing your darlings. Like you have something that you really love, that really, but it's not forwarding the mission, it's not right. And what we found with these guys is they had um, reliable, sort of systemic ways of getting material out of there that was supportive and respectful uh, and pretty quickly responsive. Uh, and so I'll go through a couple of them. So the, uh, uh, for Avenue Q, they, every time they needed some, to cut something, they would decide that that was going to go in the TV show. And they never did, did a TV show. They're probably not going to do a TV show. But it was a respectful way of saying, this is a good song, but it's, we're not going to use it here. Um, we're talking to Ryan about the kitchen. Uh, you try something, the chef has a look at it. If, if it's not going on the menu, they would say, you know, when you open your restaurant, you should put that on your menu, which is a very kind way of saying, because it's not going on mine. But but it was kind, it was as respectful as certainly as you're going to get out of a chef. Uh, and it was ultimately supportive. And everybody, the, the, the job factory, the screenwriters, uh, had a, a system for, if somebody comes in with a joke or a scene, tries it out, and it falls a little flat, they would have somebody else then try and retell that joke, retell that, and then they would do it again. So they would have three sort of retellings and everybody going to pitch for it. Um, and if it still didn't work, then the phrase was, put a pin in it, it's got enough hot air, it's done. Uh, how comedy writers are respectful, I suppose. Um, but it was it was systemic and it was reliable and it was as respectful as they were willing to be. And I think that was that was um, universal across all the folks that we talked to. Yeah. I just had the aha. This is phase two, right? When we do design projects and the client's like, that sounds great for phase two. Phase two or the parking lot. I've yeah. heard a few folks say, you know, let's put that in the parking lot. Yeah. I don't right. even know what that means other than. Not in the building. Yes, <laughs> um, So the new the new futures learned some of this stuff the hard way. They have actually an interesting way of doing it. So every, again, every week, thirty plays. They need to cut between two and twelve. So on Sundays they do cuts. And um, apparently the way they did it originally was that they would um, have these long winded debates about what place needs to stay in and what needs to go. Um, and what they realized that it was like kicking your babies down the stairs, that it was actually a very um, hostile, it, it ended up being potentially a very hostile and negative environment. So they actually switched it around. And what they do is they start at the top of the menu, and each of the plays have these really kind of colorful titles. And the conductor will read out the name of a title. And if one person says keep, then it stays in. But if it's greeted with silence, then it goes. So, um, and they just kind of, they do that until they reach their quota. Although you were asking me what happens if, you know. If everybody says it, keep. I think they just keep going until they keep doing it. repeating the process, repeating the process. But it's done without debate. And there, there's an intuitive sense that the group has of what's working and what isn't. Um, and, and that kind of comes over time. So I think it's kind of. I, like the, I really like that for the uh, relentlessly positive message. Yeah. Like, like it's either positive or silence. And in fact, um, I don't, here's a story I didn't tell. Right. But at Adaptive Path, when we hire people, uh, it's a it's a group hiring process. And at the end, we all get together in a room, and everybody will just go one, two, three. And it's either yeah. thumbs up, thumbs down, or sideways. If it's all thumbs up, we don't have to talk about it. We just hire the person, and everybody goes back to work. If it's all thumbs down, we also don't talk about that. Everybody just goes back. The only time we actually sort of really, really... Um, spend a lot of time talking about a hire is if there's a great deal of disagreement. And I guess mm-hmm. I'm pretty surprised at the, how 
seldom there is disagreement. Like yeah. there, you get that sort of intuitive sense that you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the next point that we uh, we found, and this is one of my favorites, is leadership is a service. Uh, as we talked to folks uh, um, about the leadership in their organization, they felt whenever it was successful, it was the ultimate service position, the ultimate support position. Um, Avenue Q, as I said, Bobby and Jeff had worked on that thing for about two years before they got a director on board. They found a producer who was going to uh, put a bunch of money into it, and they, they hired a director. And as you can imagine, after two years worth of work, they were really nervous to turn over all of this work to a director. The thing that the director did impressed Bobby to, to, to no end, which was sat down in their whole first rehearsal, eight hours of rehearsal. All he did was go person to person to person and have them tell their complete involvement in, in the production, mm -hmm. whether it was Bobby who started with it or the, the, the latest uh, actor, assistant stage manager who had just come on, but listen to everything that person possibly had invested in the project. Uh, everybody felt enfranchised and that that person was representing their needs. So even later on down the line when lines got cut, scenes got cut, songs got cut, uh, they disagreed with the direction, the person that was making all of those decisions had listened to them on day one and had cared about their personal involvement in this, and that made apparently a huge difference with everybody in the production. Um, I think I mentioned earlier that the magazine Web Techniques and, and uh, New Architect did the same thing, where the leaders, uh, uh, the, the managing editor, the editor-in-chief, each, each of the section editors were ultimately taking somebody's words and ideas and helping them represent them well and then help them share them with the rest of the world. It was, it was a, a great support position and that, that's what leadership was there. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons that we included this too is I think in a lot of design environments there's a, there's a kind of a very you know, top-down approach. There's creative directors and there's art directors and da 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 da, da. There, there's that kind of hierarchy. Now we did also talk about when hierarchy can be really useful. But um, there is this kind of this idea that you can really um, engage people in a way that um, by viewing yourself not as the dictator but um, as the facilitator. So the artistic director for the neo-futurist is the artistic director, but she's really she or he is really more of a it's just switched from Sharon to a new person. But um, that person is really much more of a facilitator. It's about giving people the space to be able to do their best work not necessarily like kind of forcing a vision on top of it. Steppenwolf is similar. Um, Benjamin Zander, who's the conductor of the orchestra in the photograph, um, I, just, I had an amazing experience um, with him conducting Mahler. He was unlike any conductor I had worked with. I, there were conductors who were just jerks, um, e egocentric jerks. I could go on for hours about those guys. But this guy, um, he really brought us together in a way that, um, and brought us into the music in a way that was just really, really different. I didn't feel like a cog in a wheel. But um, So Xander tells this story. He loves Mahler, and he tells the story of conducting an orchestra um, and looking out, and there's this woman who's sitting there in her chair, a violinist, who's always just kind of sitting back and just really not engaged, rehearsal after rehearsal after rehearsal. And he, he has this book called The Art of Possibility, which I, I highly recommend um, checking out. He's, he's actually starting to do work with corporations around creativity and innovation and stuff. Um, you could look at that woman and say, well, you know, she's got a real freaking attitude problem and, uh, you know, and, and, and just kind of take it from a negative standpoint. But it really bothered him that he could engage everyone but not this woman. So at some point he goes and he sits down next to her and he's like, you know, what, what you know, how are you feeling about this? And um, it turns out that she's extremely passionate about Mahler and it's her favorite composer. And that she has some fundamental disagreements with the Boeing. Um, so I bring up the Boeing again. But now we've had a little introduction to why Boeing is important. Um, but that she has a real fundamental problem with it. She's not comfortable with it. She doesn't feel like it's doing justice to the way that she feels about the music. So she's just resigned herself to just being a cog. Um, and so we asked her for her input. And she, she says, well, you know, I think you should do this phrase differently or this one and this one. And he took what she said and he incorporated it into it. And then he would go and ask her from time to time. And so she transformed from this person to that person, which is a, an engaged member of the group. And it, you know, also from an aesthetic point of view, the orchestra looks better too, right? But, but that, that it's a fundamental shift, and it, it's by having a different attitude. He was not there to bend her to his will. He was there to make an entire group of people um, function mm -hmm. together. And I think that was, to me, that was just a really very beautiful story. So, And on that note, uh, generate projects around People's the group's interests. creative interests. Yeah. So, you know, a lot, again, a lot of times in design, we're, we are sometimes the recipient of, of ideas and that we are, we are, you know, in service of those ideas. Um, 
Some of these organizations, so the neo-futurists, again, like I said, they've got the writers and the performers are actually writing their own plays. They take a much more kind of bottom-up approach. So everyone within the organization is making the, is making the work together. Um, Steppenwolf also does this, um, that they, you know, again, that they have, the members can propose plays, they can work, they can choose to work together. Um, and at Adaptive Path, we actually try to do this as well. We try to identify things that people are specifically interested, and that may change. So you could be an information architect, and, and you could be um, particularly interested in taxonomies, but that you get interested in sort of the way that those are applied in a mobile environment. And that might be what you're interested in, in right now. So when we get projects that come in the door, we start to say, well, what is the relationship between this project and the practitioners? What are they actually interested in? And we staff projects that way. Um, it's... It has a really different feeling to it when you start to do that, when you, when you start to have a sense of what everyone's actually interested in. Um, because again, it kind of goes back to ownership. That if you're working on a project that you want to work on, or is even tangentially related to what you want to work on, that you are more likely to be engaged with that project to actually, um, to actually do your best work on it. So yeah, I'll go even farther and say that anytime that Adaptive Path has taken a job because the money was good, like it was easy money, or taken a job because we wanted somebody on a client list, it has gone disastrously, like reliably. Yep. And and uh, I think uh, one of my jobs is, as the person responsible for uh, making sure that we make money is to remind folks that we ha there's there's a lot of work out there. We're gonna find it. Let's make sure we're doing stuff that we're engaged in because if not, it's gonna it's gonna cost us one way or another. Yeah, you know, I think when I when I've talked about this kind of thing before, one of the um, criticisms is, well, when you're in a consulting environment, you can kind of, you can make your own, um, you can, you know, pick and choose, and you're an adaptive path, and you can do that, which is true on one level, but I mean, the other thing is, it is that kind of sense of when you follow what your heart says, that the, the money, the money and the things follow, follow you, follow you, but even if you're in, I mean, it's really important if you're in an in-house environment to keep people engaged, and it's true that you may be, as part of an organization, the cert, you, you are performing a specific service um, within that organization, it's about maybe looking at those projects differently. How can you um, either staff them differently or give people challenges or even make side projects, things that can kind of keep people engaged, um, you know, but come at it from a different angle. And I think, I think that it's, it's possible, it's possible to do that. Um, it may not always be the obvious, the obvious thing. Um, so. The, the job factory talks a lot about working with studios and how they'll start writing a Western and end up with Alf the movie. Or something just because, you know, targets change and new movies are coming out and somebody else is doing an elf movie, so we have to do an elf movie. Um, and that they too have dropped a number of projects just because at a certain point, there's no interest amongst the group. They just, they're not going to get it done. It's not going to be fun or funny. Uh, and that, and that even when the target moves on them, they have to disengage at a certain point, which I think is, uh, is tough to do when there's money on the table. Yeah. But, yeah. but, but right. Yep. Okay. So I think. Uh, and then the, the number 10 is something that we talk about all the time, but we found really interesting the way that these organizations remember their audience, making sure that they're doing something, especially when we're talking about uh, musicians, writers, uh, uh, performers that can focus a lot on the art they're creating for either intellectual purposes or academic purposes. They're, they're trying to create something that's really beautiful, and it's easy to forget that you're doing it for other people. So Avenue Q was written entirely in diners and parks. And they would go through a, a process where they would finish with something and then look up and just sort of survey the, the people that were in the diner, the park right there, and just say, okay, this is as likely as anybody, our audience for Avenue Q. Would they find this funny, or is this for us? Is this actually a compelling character, or is this really just something that we like? And they would, they would from the get-go, find ways to engage with their audience. Um, interestingly, they are working on a project, same writers are working on a project with uh, Stone and Parker, the South Park guys. And they were looking for an office because they have to do uh, a lot more meetings. <laughs> and they, uh, so they were looking for an office and they found one in Midtown Manhattan. It's a third floor of a building. And Bobby realized that it was sandwiched between a, a violin maker and an abortion clinic. And he thought, well, if we're doing something with the South Park guys, being sandwiched between the, these two places and thinking the people mm -hmm. in the hall are coming there for their violins and their abortions. Yeah, that's about right for this project. Right. That's about, that's <laughs> about the right space. So they, they signed the lease. <laughs> Remember your audience. Yeah. Uh, the, the, actually, okay, moving on. The kitchen um, uh, had a really interesting thing that I'd never heard before, which was uh, th they segment their audience into uh, into two different ways, although I don't, I'm not sure they'd talk about it this way, but what I, the way I heard it was they segment their audience into the sort of regulars and new diners. And the general manager, the person responsible for the business and sort of front of house, uh, wants to make sure those regular diners are taken care of. 
If they're coming there for the liver and onions, the liver and onions need to be prepared the same way as it was the first time they loved it and the same way they're coming back next time. So the, and the regulars is the bread and butter of most restaurants. The new diners uh, is, uh, seem to be represented pretty well by the folks in the kitchen, the chef in particular. The chef doesn't want to make liver and onions every day for the rest of his life. That's boring. The chef is responsible for making sure that there's something new and fresh and interesting that follows the sort of mission of the restaurant on the menus to bringing people in. So there's this interesting um, section of, of each of the audience that's represented, and it be, can be adversarial, it can be complementary, and I think uh, uh, really successful organizations find a way to, to make sure that both are represented well. Um, is that about it? Oh, new futures. Yeah, I just yeah, go back to I'll the... I love this picture. So what this is is actually when you, when you go into the show at the new futurists, um, the actors are sitting in these desks with their, these CD players and they're writing out name tags. And so you, you say, what's your name? And you say your name and they, they put something else. So I think mine was like, here comes trouble. And so the, there are these people who are like completely sensorily caught, um, cut off from you, but they're kind of, um, inter interacting. It's a weird, it's interacting with you. But, but the point is that they actually look at the entire audience experience as very much part of, of their show because one of the things that, the Neo Futures don't compete with other theaters. They compete with bars, with um, sports events, with movies, with um, people's keg parties. Um, they are Friday, Saturday nights at 11 o'clock. So they know their audience pretty well. <laughs> um, and so they do things like they have the, the bars open when they, they come and when, when the audience arrives. And they have this whole kind of um, the thing they call the state park, which sort of forces the audience to interact with each other. You, um, you're, the price of admission is determined by the roll of a die. Um, but they also then explicitly do things within their plays. One of their other kind of that value set, the neo, neo futurist manifesto value set is, um, around, uh, audience engagement. So it's not, and often it's not just breaking the third wall of, you know, cause neo futurists have, there's, there's not supposed to be any sense of fear to it. It's supposed to be you're watching real people doing stories from their lives. Um, but they bring people up. They kind of, my favorite one was, they had a one minute where everyone in the audience had to look at each other in the eye. You had to pick someone you didn't know, stare at them in the eyes for a minute, which is incredibly uncomfortable. Um, but it's that way that they kind of make sure that they are always remembering that they are um, both in service of their own artistic visions, but in service of the audience as well. And you know, again, as, as user experience people, that seems really obvious to us. But it, you know, I think it's what's interesting about these organizations is how they like really try to put themselves into the into the audience experience. So we actually have uh, a point eleven as well, which we yeah. didn't hear. We just believe in and talked about a bunch, which is finding it's ways goodness. to celebrate failure, making sure that failure uh, is, failure is a necessary byproduct of a creative process. People are going to try things, and some of them are going to fail. So uh, especially for the folks that are responsible for the management of that, the funding of that, the uh, the decision making about what's in or out, making sure that it is okay to fail. And in fact, we talked about really doing, yeah, um, we'll do a really successful project. And we have what used to be called postmortems after projects. Like now we're calling them after parties. But so we'll all get together and talk about what went well. And it's actually much better, especially with a successful project, to talk about what went wrong. Mm -hmm. Like this went really well, but there are a number of things we could do better. There are, there are small bits of failure involved in every project and talking about them openly and encouraging them so mm -hmm. that you can, as Sarah calls it, make sure that they're learning opportunities. Yeah, learning. Failures are learning opportunities. Um, but what's, what's interesting, so again, we didn't, I mean, nobody, well, the, I guess Sharon from the Neo Futures talks explicitly about and about being supportive of failure. But one of the things that, that I, you know, I find in the environment that I work in at Adaptopath um, is that you know, because we do these post, can't call them postmortems. I like postmortem. Okay, after parties because we do these after parties. Um, they have a very specific structure to them. There's the what worked, what didn't, and what have we learned. And what strikes me when I sit in that, as opposed to other work environments I've been in, um, there's very little blame going around. The people are actually trying to be very constructive, and so we have a format that we can be constructive in. And you can talk about things that didn't work, but you talk about them not in a like you screwed this up, and because of that, da 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 da. Um, you can actually start to figure out constructive ways of fixing those things. And, and what I find from that is that means that when I'm, when I'm in the middle of a project, I know that nobody's going to come and point a finger at me later and say that I, they might have a, we might have a conversation about what didn't work and what we could do better, but nobody's going to come and say to me that I'm, an, I'm a failure because of blah, 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 which means I'm willing to take risks that I wouldn't otherwise take. Um, and when we talk about being innovative or being inventive, you have to be able to take risks. Otherwise, um, 
you, you, you'll just kind of do the same thing over and over again. So I guess this is just our little like plug for failure. Um, <laughs> plug for failure because without failure, there's really all, you're kind of doomed to a life of repeating the same safe things, um, over and over and over again. So I think that that is That's our, it. Of our um, always end on failure. Always end on failure. Good. So, uh, we have about <laughs> 10 minutes more. If anybody has any questions, there are a couple of, um, mics here. Or you can just raise your hand and holler, whichever you like. Yeah. <laughs> Start with that. Thank you. <laughs> Any questions about the folks we talked to or Adaptive Path or some of our favorite failures? Right over here. Yeah. So uh, this is one of the rare panels that makes me want to stop doing freelance work and go back to a full-time job. Um, is that good? <laughs> but I've been there, and um, it wasn't like this. There were a lot of things that they could have learned from the 10 or 11 uh, items you uh, you presented, and all I want to say is from point number one, uh, uh, cross discipline, making sure all your employees have cross disciplines. Um, the problem was we had that at our job, mm -hmm. but they made us do all of them in the same project, oh. and that was not fulfilling at all. Yeah. And it's important to make sure that you get you know dip your hands into all different parts of the project, all different parts of the mm -hmm. process. Just not all in the same project. Right. Yeah, I think. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I think. That, I mean, I think that's actually a really good point. That goes to that kind of knowing like role definition. When to have like really good role definition? Because we certainly run into that when you're when it gets kind of bendy. Where you know I do a little bit of project management. When I'm a project lead, I do a little bit of project management, and I do a little bit of interaction design, and it does get really really fuzzy around that. So sometimes I think that's it's a conversation that we sometimes not we don't end up having explicitly. I think that role definition conversations should happen more often. Where it's like what am I going to do? What are you going to do? And you kind of negotiate those things. As you get to know people better, you kind of get that sense. But sometimes when it's new people, especially freelance, mm -hmm. you kind of go into a situation where you don't necessarily know the people very well. And so I yeah, that, that, I think that's one thing I took out of this was to actually have more explicit role conversations. Thanks. Over here. Thank you. Uh, oh, so, uh, so full disclosure, I actually work with you guys, uh -huh. um, and, <laughs> I'm gonna, and I'm going to throw a softball at you. Um, okay. oh. So, Sarah, um, oh. I'm knowing your role in, in the company, I'm wondering how, if there's a way that people here who aren't necessarily um, in, the, in a management role mm -hmm. could somehow bring some of these uh, some of these changes to their organizations. I'm wondering if there's a way you can elaborate on that. Yes. Probably. That was a softball. I'm like, dang, God. That's the dreaded question, actually, because it, because it, this is actually a question I get at a lot of things. Like, how do you actually, if you're in an organization that is highly siloed and highly hierarchical, how do you actually go about, um, and, and you don't have the ear of somebody who, who is willing to kind of, willing to, willing to listen? I mean, I always, and this may be a softball answer, I always advocate for guerrilla techniques, um, where you kind of, you start to um, find 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 like minds within at at your level at your sort of place in the organization. You try to actually find a working situation that can actually work for you. I don't know if that really yeah. If you're that question, if you're in a but, if you're in a creative environment where they don't let you try other things, oh, uh, my softball answer is quit. Quit. I mean, go somewhere else. <laughs> that's actually that's a much better answer. So, over here. Hi. Uh, yes. Um, Found found all the points very interesting and happily feel that uh, our organization uh, is is kind of in that vein. Um, the one that kind of stuck out for me though was the um, change leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I that's kind of counterintuitive. I feel like that that might po pose a lot of problems because different people, mm -hmm. as you as you sp said, uh, you, your understanding of his understanding of I mean, right. so two different people who you may think are on the same page. Can you elaborate a little bit more on how changing leadership mid-project? You said day-to-day -day in some in oh, the case oh, oh. of, you know. Uh, like, I mean, yeah, so that was, that was um, so I think uh, per project, they had, uh, talking about the job factor, the screenwriters, each project had somebody that was clearly in charge, but they worked on a number of projects every day. Um, I think I think month-to-month um, -month or phase-to-phase, -phase, like every project uh, has phases. And so I think you can uh, uh, let somebody with uh, strengths in one area step up and take the lead for a discovery process or a research process or a design or an implementation process. And the, while there has to, once there is that shared vision, I think you can trust the individuals to really lead in the areas in which they're experts, in which they are uh, the, the, the strongest person on the team. Um, it takes a really 
comfortable, egoless ultimate leader to be able to, to give that away. Um, but I, I think it's really healthy for the overall team and for the, ultimately the, the project if you can do that. Well, you know, I also I think about sometimes we've used the phrase the decider. I mean, I think that sometimes you, you have to have someone who's a decider yeah. um, or who is at least tasked with um, who has that as who has that as part of their role. And I think it needs to be explicit sometimes because because you can get the three headed monster who's going to just do that a little yeah. for that. It's also, but, um, I think that having, ha I mean, in the times that I've had, I, I've either been in the role or I know who the decider is. I actually feel a lot more comfortable with that because I know that I'm, at some point, a decision will be made that I can either, well, sometimes live with, mm -hmm. or you know, know that I've, or let it go, or whatever. But, but that there's, there, there is that, there's that fine line between giving people a lot of freedom and then keeping the thing moving forward. Also, a lot of times it's really nice to not be in charge for a little while. Sure. So Peter Merholtz, founder of the company, president of the company, is playing second on a client right now. Yeah. And I think he's having a really nice time because he is not in charge. He just gets to, to, to do, to make the things as opposed to lead. Yeah. Over here. Uh, what are some tools to help uh, prevent a project from becoming stagnant or uh, to help people within that creative uh, group work through any type of creative blocks that they might be having mm. from some or is it or is it these these ten tips will help go beyond and you won't have that problem sometimes well so some some of the experiences that I've had when it when it particularly around circular discussion so something some some things I've noticed with, with teams is that you'll kind of get hooked on, on some problem that every time you meet, that's what you talk about, and no resolution is ever kind of made around it. One of the things that, um, one of the things that I've done, um, and this, I think this actually goes to the kind of having somebody who's kind of strong in the room, maybe unpopular, but strong, <laughs> um, is to come in and say, you know what, we've been going along this way and it is not working. So let's just try this one other thing. So sometimes there are techniques like, um, the, I think it's the KJ exercise. I can't remember the, the name of the guy who does it. But it's basically like a, um, sometimes what I'll do is I'll try to get the conversation to, to kind of stop for a while, pass out stickies to everyone, have a very specific question, and have each person write their answers to that question without talking about it anymore. Just I, I want everything that's in your brain, and I want it out on paper, and then I want it up on the walls. So you put, you like cover all the stickies on the walls, and then I have the group um, resort, resort into categories and try to get a sense of what what the whole landscape of of whatever the problem is. Um, that's like a very kind of a, a concrete um, technique, but there's there's a kind of a series of techniques, the KJ exercise, that can help you do that. But it really depends on what you're trying to do. I'd say at the core, it's you know, if you're all, if you're going like going along in one direction, it's what what can you do to kind of run something across it that's going to fundamentally change whatever that dynamic is, whether that's like physically changing your environment or, like I say, ending the discussion and doing something very physical. Sometimes that those kinds of things can just can reframe it. Sometimes you have to bring somebody from the outside in too, who's going to have a completely different perspective who can kind of manage. The now she's selling. Oh, um, I don't know. I'm so sorry. Uh, but I, I do think that um, also reminding yourself what the mission is mm -hmm. and making sure that that's a positive mission. I talk to a lot of people that are like, we have to redesign the website because it sucks. Like your corporate website because it sucks. Those projects always stagnate because there's nothing you're moving towards. You're just moving away from a sucky website. So I think when things stagnate, you remind yourself what was the original intent of mm -hmm. the of the yeah. of the project. What is the mission? Where's it? Where are we going? And I think that things die when those two things get forgotten. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Time for more. Uh, yeah, one more over here. Okay, one more. Um, I'm a classical musician like you, Sarah, and I've got a question about the uh, practice, practice, practice uh -oh. part. Yes. Um, before I do, I'm curious, how many other classically trained musicians yeah, are there too. out here? I'm nice. told nice. that there's a high correlation. Can have group I know there's at least later. one other stage manager here. <laughs> Great. No, oh, two. two. Ooh, nice. We have our little group therapy session later. Um, so, <laughs> so typically when you're practicing, mm -hmm. um, a lot of it um, when you're practicing music is to be able to do it without thinking. Mm -hmm. um, you right. work out a fast passage so yeah. that um, it's just under your fingers, happens automatically. Um, in the um, web world, the equivalent of that is being able to do something in Photoshop or mm -hmm. with code automatically. Mm -hmm. um, but we typically don't provide any time for the people who are working on this right. to practice and yeah. do throwaway stuff. I yeah. mean, when you're practicing music, 
uh, you're producing sounds that you wouldn't want anybody to hear ever. Right. Um, but we don't ever provide uh, the time to do throwaway work just mm -hmm. to make sure that you can do the tools without thinking. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, some, I mean, one one way you could think about that is actually in prototyping. Prototyping is sometimes that where you tr you try something out and to see how it how it's going to actually go. I used to try to find forced time in my day to have those like the practice times because that was the the model that I had going into it. It's kind of ended up where I've tried to figure out how to have how to build that into the actual project that I'm working on. That play time. Sometimes we do it with sketch. I mean, the, the, where I'm at now, it's around sketching. It's sketching and sketching and sketching and iterating. So it might be like reframing that into the kind of, I know, I'm gonna use air quotes, the agile, more, more sort of cyclical, iterative, um, re, kind of repeated goes at, at a similar problem. And that I think looking at it more like that, as opposed to like, I'm just gonna play with this thing and then throw it away, like trying to figure out how to incorporate it into the actual work. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Cool. Thanks. And that's our time. Thank you very much Thank for coming. You. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.